Ready, because I certainly am. I want to talk about a number of subjects which came out during this last week, uh, some of which got me truly exhilarated, one of which is actually the answer to our first question on Borderless Executive Live, and that is, are companies really ready for this so-called flexible work environment, whatever name you want to give it? In fact, this week I had the pleasure of meeting Brett Howtop. Uh, he's the founder of WorkShape. That's a consultancy created at what many people consider to be a pivotal moment of existential change in the history of work. Uh, Brett's an architect and a lecturer in design, and most recently worked at LinkedIn, where he was responsible for all aspects of the company's global workplace program and the workplace experience. So are companies really ready for the flexible work environment? Well, I can tell you that Brett's enthusiasm you really communicated and his unique style and expertise came across as an ideal person to help build consensus around a topic where I believe rational thinking is often overshadowed by historical habits, going to the office every day, emotion, lots of that, and lots of personal biases. So why this topic? Well, you know, in our everyday work at Borderless, we're talking to many executive teams and they're debating the number of days employees should commute to an office or work from home. A topic, by the way, we're also dealing on a smaller scale with at our global hub in Brussels. In our conversation, as Brett pointed out, there's some really fundamental questions that need to be asked. I mean, very simply, you know, where is the best place to get work done? Maybe in the office, maybe not. What kind of an office? How should our teams be organized? When and why do people need to be physically together? And plenty more. I'm sure you have your own list too. Well, during our conversation it became clear that there are many organizations out there that still need to develop a comprehensive workplace strategy. We're familiar with the fact that lots of time is being spent arguing whether we need offices at all. I mean, where should they be? How big? How small? And what are the things that really need to happen there in the office? CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, as you'll be familiar reading news, are actually ordering people back to the office because that's the way we used to know and this is the traditional way of working. But is it the right answer? Let's just say that decisions do not always take into account what's best for the company and for the employee. It's clear as day that there's a need for organizations to create a fresh experience that will sustain their workforces in the future. Uh, in my conversation, Brett was arguing that the shape of the workplace should in fact reflect on your organization, its strategy, its culture, its values, and its workplace policies. The, the workplace needs to bring some kind of a meaning and value to employees if they are to make use of it and if they are to make any sense at all from a sustainability and human perspective. In fact, it's a big investment that's got to yield proper returns. So beyond determining whether you should have physical locations or are trying to right-size them, make them the right size in, in compared to the attendance and utilization patterns, you're going to need to figure out what types of spaces are required for which activities if you're going to get the best ROI. The strategy is going to be dependent 
on your company's cultural as that's a long word aspirations uh, and uh, tactical workforce policies. As Brett commented to me, until we until now we either had enough workspace or we found ways to fit more people in the same space. We're all familiar with Dilbert and Company, or we just found more space. We had an old friend, Andrew Chadwick, who was in the same kind of area, and he had a very simple process. He said, the space you need for the time that you need it. That seems to be still making a lot of sense today. It's a difficult task, as is defining philosophy around the design of physical workplaces. Likely, it's going to take a lot more than football tables and beanbags around the office. The reasons and times that people come to the office will be very different, as will the expectations of what actually happens once they actually get there. Doing the very same thing in the office that you were doing at home doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. You know, sitting in a 10 video calls, Teams or Zoom or whatever, at home and being thinking very efficient and going to the office to do the same thing really leads you to question why you've traveled to the office in the first place. So ultimately, organizations will need to create purpose and value to get a return on coming to the office in person. At Borderless, we see companies, people like Tetrapack, for example, experimenting with new types of spaces and new reasons for being there in the office. Not only that, but the ability to attract and retain employees through a new novel workplace strategy has to come to the top of the HR task list. According to Brett Howtop, there are many companies even today that are a complete standstill. They're waiting around, waiting to see how others are going to move forward, or even worse, they're making reductions in their office footprint without any true long-term strategy in place. And with so much change on the horizon, how you involve the shape of your workplace will also impact your business's sustainability and confirm or otherwise a sustainable approach that supports your ESG strategy for your company. So I'm really indebted to Brett for getting me tanked up on this particular subject and for helping us to evolve our thinking on our work environment. And I hope that some of the answers that you, you've heard here will catalyze thinking in your organizations. And by the way, to help things along, I've actually invited Brett to spend some more time with us on an upcoming Borderless Executive Live podcast. You'll hear that in the next couple of weeks. So I'll let you know when that happens. So that's it so far. I'm now waiting for your questions from uh, this lovely audience uh, to see what else you want some answers from. Uh, they're going to come straight from the hip as always, but I'm sure there'll be some interesting stuff that you want to know. Meanwhile, let me move on to a second point that came up in the week, which really is a basis for a question two uh, on my list of stuff to attend to. And this is very simple. What are the benefits and downsides of expatriation for internationally mobile families. A big subject indeed. So let me just tell you, I think at Borderless, we often joke that all of us at Borderless had a real life before becoming consultants uh, for several 
of us, our careers as international executives meant expatriation, together with families, ready to gain that next level of corporate experience and make us all feel good about our careers. We quickly realized, though, that however excited and optimistic we were at the prospect of a move, within days and weeks, we were becoming overwhelmed at times by the simple basics of living in a new country. As a newly arrived executive, of course, there was familiarity because I was busy in the business I already knew. For the so-called training spouse, who'd possibly taken time out from an already fulfilling career, it's a different matter altogether. And for the children, strange schools, no friends, and another language really compounded the misery. So is there actually an upside uh, of expatriation for the family? Well, strangely enough, there's a lot of good published materials on the difficulties and the grief uh, that expatriate families experience. Um, but very little has been said about the eventual benefits. Um, so I was really, really thrilled this week to, on the basis of this interest, to make a, uh, have a good, really good meeting with a lady called Dr. Catherine Coyney, who's just completed some really good work, a very extensive study uh, of expatriate families, not just the moment of arrival in the new location, but what happens in a year or so when generally sunnier times are ahead. In the process, I think it became clear that Catherine has also involved some very clear views on what makes a successful transition and also what families, employers, and schools should do differently to really enhance this expatriate experience. As part of a forward-thinking policy um, for expatriate employees and their families, it seems to us to make really good sense to prepare a family well before the move whether that's in language or cultural preparation, which some companies do, or, and certainly more than one visit to the new location. It should go well beyond the casual couple of days of familiarization and house hunting in the new territory, and then off you go. Well, perhaps a few days in class at the new school for the kids or support for job finding for the training spouse would mean an easier transition for the whole family and a lot more productivity for the expatriate uh, business person. Now, of course, we realize, and particularly in these times, how expensive expatriation is. In general, maybe two and a half times, sometimes more, the cost of employing somebody locally. So, you know, these are not necessarily the times when you want to incur those expenses. And, of course, there are more and more executives say, I really don't want to disrupt my family life. Uh, I don't want to take on the burden uh, of uh, moving my family. I'd rather live with having to travel frequently and stay in my current location. So I'm going to be doing the traveling. Well, however obvious this might seem, in our view, this is rarely desirable, nor is it sustainable. And much of the benefits of expatriation are lost both to the company and ultimately also to the families. I was really pleased to note in this conversation uh, that Catherine uh, has prepared some good extensive notes on the do's and the don'ts and the downsides and benefits. And we're going to publish these for you in the next few weeks.
there's another one I thought we've got to hear more from her. So I'm going to invite uh, Catherine too as a guest on the next Borderless podcast sometime early in the new year if you want to make a diary note. So this said, uh, we are and remain firm advocates of expatriation to and from headquarters. It's not only out of headquarters to the field, but back again. Or people from the field go into headquarters to broaden experiences. Expatriation to headquarters. And also, of course, between country organizations, there's a great deal to be gained. Companies, in our view, that have a systemic, uh, excuse me, a systematic and very supportive policy for expatriation of execs really end up making a much deeper understanding of their markets and, more importantly, avoid become HQ-centric in their decision-making. And, of course, with that come benefits for companies, for the executives, and for their families. And you need to have some courage to make these moves, of course, but you acquire experiences that continue to benefit the executive for the rest of his life and his career, and also for the whole families. So think about it. And if you are in the position of being requested to expatriate, think about what the company and what you are going to do, and also think a lot about what's going to be the experience for your family, and is this a good idea? Uh, but nonetheless, we believe that for broad career perspective, this is the right thing to do. So somebody else raised a question to me the other day, and I had some personal experience this week, which, like in many weeks, the same subjects come up. Are you sure you know what you want to do next in your career? Uh, it's a conversation my colleagues and I have several times a week. For those of you that may be less familiar with the world of executive search, I think people have this impression you're spending all day on the phone talking to candidates, uh, your time's 100% uh, taken up with that to try and find the right people for whichever executive role uh, you're working on. In fact, the reality is that each of us takes several hours each week, and we reserve these hours for conversations with executives who come and seek our advice because they feel they ought to be doing something different with their careers, and they welcome another perspective. Often this confirms their own conclusions. They may be in a job or may be looking for a job, and just depends. Nonetheless, it's an activity we willingly undertake. And you may think this is all very kind of altruistic. There's no money at the end of the day, right? We're having free conversations. Advice is free. Uh, however, uh, to some extent, it's altruistic. Uh, most of us are in executive search consulting because we enjoy working with people and helping people to make some of life's more difficult and very emotional decisions. So uh, before you conclude, of course, that you're a bunch of softies, all funny and soft at Borderless, but we are, of course. But building these relationships does have a long-term payback for us too. Uh, people remember us and hopefully become friends of the house. So these are activities that we undertake willingly. So why this question? Are do you sure what you know what you want to do? Well, you know, in these conversations, executives have a tendency uh, to continue to do what they've been successful at 
in the past and continue the same path ever upwards. There's nothing wrong with that, and it seems to make sense. But our advice tends to be that whenever you're contemplating a change, it's worth asking whether extending your current trajectory is going to be the best way for you to go. Had you considered any alternatives? And no, I don't mean another company in a similar industry, but things which are much more fundamental. It occurs to us the majority of people we're talking to are already some way advanced in their careers. They're executives. And by the time you get so-called midway through your working life, which itself seems to be extended every single, every single year, there's not much a successful executive cannot do. By the, this time of life, there's nothing particularly that you wouldn't be any good at. But what is it that really satisfy you, satisfies you? There I say it, what makes you really happy, guys? What brings a shine to your eyes and a bounce in your step? Will it be more doing the same as you've done now for the last 20 years? Hmm. So before that next career move, my advice is always at night, middle of the night, it's dark, you're lying in bed, stare at the ceiling a bit. Ask yourself some pretty fundamental questions. What can I do that will make me feel really satisfied? That would not be more of the same. Of course, if I could become CEO, my ego would be definitely satisfied, maybe my pocket too. But is that it? What if you don't become CEO? What happens then? So next time you need a sparring partner, you may want to try talking to your nearest and dear, dearest. Uh, they tend to know you well, perhaps better than you know yourself, perhaps too well. But of course, we can help with that too. So be ready. Have a conversation with us anytime and be ready to get more questions than you get answers. So do you think that executive coaching is worthwhile for executive? That's a good question, Mr. Anonymous. Uh, do you think executive coaching is worthwhile for executives to truly understand how to get to what they actually want rather than more ego and, and but passion? Have I got that right? Didn't say it very well. I think I know what you're getting at. Well, let's think about that just a second. Do I think that executive coaching is worthwhile for executives to get to the bottom of what their future lives ought to be like? 100%, absolutely. And there's some great people around in the world who really know how to do that. With that comes an enormous caveat. There are many, many people who call themselves executive coaches. The majority have not been executives themselves. So first thing, really check out who you're talking to. Check out that they've been where you would like to go or where you have been in the past. Check out that they really understand and have the maturity uh, to provide you advice that is not biased in the same way that you'd expect perhaps somebody who just wants to become your executive coach for life. And by the way, I'm not talking here about life coaches. I'm talking here about really business people who are keen to help others achieve a more successful business career, but above all, something that is going to be satisfying for them in their lives. That's really, really a critical aspect of it. So be careful who you choose. And by the way, price is everything. Like in any other way of life, if somebody appears to be very much at the low end of price, the chances are you're not getting a senior executive. 
There isn't a senior executive coach who's working for a hundred uh, euros an hour. Huh? I'm sorry, that doesn't work. I mean, these guys, really the guys you want to be depending on are into the three to $5,000 a day, uh, euros a day mark. They're really worth listening to. They've been there. They've done that. They can get to the bottom of the analysis. And yes, by the way, also think about doing some personal assessment work as well in that process. Okay, here's another one. Uh, what sort of homework would you give the family prior to moving to a new location, other than the obvious researching, visiting location a few times? Very good question. I mean, I think through the uh, the COVID last couple of uh, lockdown years, a number of people have made moves to entirely new locations based on some calls and some video visits. Um, maybe... You know, your future employer will take you around the plant uh, on a video or whatever, provide you with a bunch of other materials. But there's no question that visiting really does help. But let's say prior to visiting, what kind of homework would you give? Well, the biggest homework all of us in our executive search firm give to potential candidates who are going to be right for these roles is to go home and talk to families. And I don't mean have a short conversation over, over boiling a kettle uh, with your spouse. I'm really talking about uh, really deep, extensive conversations with every member of your family. And I'm also saying, don't do this once. Do it several times. Take the time out a weekend. Go and talk. When you have a time when your mind is not busy with a thousand other tasks, really go deep into the topic. Because unless you have a family that's really committed and as committed as you are, there's a high risk that you're not going to get as much out of this or be as successful as you would like to be. By the way, this is a very good reason why search assignments sometimes take a lot longer than you'd imagine. I mean, you'd, you'd think that with things like you know automation and LinkedIn and other things, it'd be really easy to find the right people and really easy to get to talk to them and so on. Well, you know, no doubt these tools have helped us to make initial contact with people. But the, it's not a mechanical process. It's a human process. Making an international move, expatriation, requires socialization of this whole process. Never thought of it before. Do I want to leave my family behind? Uh, my mother-in-law lives around the corner. Is that okay? How will they feel? How old are they? How often do I need to be here? All those things really need some serious discussion, which is why the mechanical aspects of, let's say, getting hold of people and getting first interests and so on may take four weeks, five weeks of really solid research and initial contacts. But if you're the candidate that is really considering this heavy move, you may take another two or three weeks just to make sure that you are comfortable with making the move and that you have the complete backing from your family. So that's why the process is extended, because it's a human process, not a mechanical one. Recruitment's a different matter altogether. But executive search at this level requires time, requires careful thought, and requires solid judgment and decision-making on both the part of the company and the future employee. So that's what I'd recommend. And with that, I think I've probably said enough for today. You're probably all saying, God, can you get on with it? I'm off. In any case, I hope you found 
it uh, interesting to listen for the last few minutes. And I look forward to seeing you back again next Thursday on Borders Executive Live. Thank you so much for having joined me.